Welcome to the Deep Well Podcast, Episode 1. I'm Mutende Wright, and today on Episode 1 of the Deep Well, we will be discussing BBI and transforming the political landscape. Throughout much of Kenya's history of independence, the political class, along with manifestos of political players, have been punitive and negatively impacted the citizens, along with the unfulfilled promises right across the board. Several terms have been used to describe this repeated happenstance, ranging from Kenya has its owners to divisive political slogans like, we are eating meat and they aren't. The cumulative effect with each election has been a fragile and increasingly brittle mock-up of a country. With independence, the immediate post-independence citizens believed in a nation with a cause. Until Kenya's history happened, the new communities to hate each other under the tutelage of their elected leaders. Also open to debate, given the repeated failings of electoral commissions and tainted elections. These leaders under tribal alignments became akin to tribal overlords or godfathers or whatever other descriptive synonym comes to your mind. What factual validation do I have to support this perspective? Well, consider the alignments of the first multi-party elections after the repeal of the single party. Also consider that the late great Tom Mboya was elected as a member of parliament for Nairobi Central Constituency, which is now known as Kamkunji, in 1963. Shortly after his assassination, it seemingly became a function of ethnic inheritance, considering the nomenclature of successive MPs of the constituency. This is not an accusation against any of those seat holders. Not an accusation, but rather a segue into introducing a more destructive element that more voraciously was rampant against Kenya's own citizens, especially with the re-establishment of multi-partism, the Mtuwetu paradigm, which was followed closely and viciously by its kindred paradigm, the tyranny of numbers. These two paradigms birthed a constant state of ethnic political antagonism and the belief that Kenya belonged only and primarily to those who had the numbers. With ethnically, ethnically polarized centers of power and a winner-take-all presidency, a community's well-being was solely determined by either retaining or obtaining the presidency. The resulting non-corporeal ethnic supremacy psychosis that has plagued Kenya, being instilled and distilled by its leaders, physically manifested itself in the post-election violence that followed the compromised 2007 elections. The political atonements that followed these elections did not effectively tackle the causes of the sudden and the retaliatory violence, despite a power-sharing deal and the promulgation of the new constitution. The unrectified fallacies of the electoral commissions, electoral systems, electoral discontent, tribal disenfranchisement, and suspicions 
continued to simmer through the 2012-2017 elections, boiling over once again in the protests that followed the 2017 elections. These protests caused an economic standstill in 2018, compounded with attacks against the independence of the judiciary, whose election petition judgment flew in the face of the Mutuetu paradigm and the tyranny of numbers. The ruling was more focused on the sanctity of the electoral procedure rather than the outcome, as any true and safeguarded democracy should be. I could ask at this point, is Kenya really a democracy? But that is a question for another day. So, when the court ordered repeated second election, or selection, take your pick, which was boycotted by disenfranchised communities were the bedrock of the opposition at the time, two counter-paradigms emerged against the center. The first, the National Resistance Movement, and the second, the People's Assemblies. Their merit, for most, depended on your ethnic political affiliations, but their effects were undeniable. The prolonged boycotts and business disruptions that affected predominantly private enterprises caused the economically privileged to feel the economic disruption that many marginalized communities prior to the partial relief of devolution had failed to continue to face. These privileged individuals had to face the realization that no successful nation can survive on winner or community take-all kingship presidential systems. In response to the plausible threat of Kenya disintegrating completely, the principles in some level of secrecy spawned the handshake. From the handshake, the Building Bridges Initiative, or BBI, was born. BBI being the specific focus of this podcast episode. Within the polarized political equation, the two principles realized the danger of ethnic political contests and proffered BBI to the Kenyan public as the solution. Kenya's status as a young nation, however, is not an excuse for its current state, as there are too many regional and continental examples of the perilous outcomes of bad leadership, manifested mostly as ethnically fused genocide. So what is BBI? Is it a miracle elixir to eliminate all of our ills? Is it Kenya's one-stop fix? BBI in Kenyan history, to many, is the latest in a sequence of politician-spearheaded paradigms purported to solve the embedded teething problems that Kenya faces today. All over social media, pundits, keyboard warriors, and respected learning professionals have given their take on it. And for many, the consensus is, or seems to suggest, that BBI is an exercise in public relations and a sham game to maintain the existing political class status quo without having them take accountability. Several stakeholders in the political class viewed as transformative the transformation that Kenya needs. Other players in the political class have denounced it. So, focusing on the paradigm of transformation that the BBI claims is its bedrock, This allows me to discuss BBI and the transformation of the political landscape the Kenyans should and must adopt. 
For context in giving my views, allow me to start off with a metaphorical representation of the suggestions I am going to put forward. I am sure many have heard of the tales of the Pied Piper, who stole the future of a village when seemingly betrayed by the said village. Imagine for a moment that we could control the tune the Pied Piper played to prevent the stealing away of the future and the damning of the present. If such control had been possible since independence, the succession of Pied Pipers that Kenya has suffered from at multiple levels of government would not have held at ransom the promise of Kenya's future nor damned today through political contests, which have been counterproductive to development. The political class survives on owning the mindset of power, and for many, BBI represents the continuation of that, seen as an exercise, seen as an exercise intended to further entrench political dynasties, using taxpayers' money without taxpayers' approval to do so. At a time when there are more pressing concerns for the public money, like honoring the multiple CBAs the government has continually signed and disowned. The People's Assemblies would possibly have, if allowed by law, achieved the transfer of the mindset of power, but it was ruled unconstitutional. BBI, ironically, has not been subject to court scrutiny, being brought first before the people, advocating social harmony and the selection of better leaders. In contrast, BBI for many is not a building bridges initiative but a basic brainwashing initiative, initiated, initiated by political players seeking to avoid responsibility for Kenya's sad current state, responsibility which solely and squarely falls on their shoulders and exposes their role in state capture and stealth. This brings me to the cornerstone question of the podcast, which I'll seek to offer my own take on possible solutions to. I also encourage you to read the BBI document and do the same if you haven't already done so. The cornerstone question of today's Deep Well episode is, what can be done to really improve leadership in Kenya? Not taking for given or taking for granted the tenants alluding to the same ideals within the BBI document. On the basis of my interpretation, of the BBI and Kenya's history of political duplicity and state capture. I would seek to propose the following countermeasures against the disservice the political class has been. Solution one, repeal the Indegwad report changes made in the 1970s. As an anti-corruption measure, to limit corruption of political and state appointed officers who once elected or appointed must not engage in independent business and a barrier preventing them, their families and close associates from doing business with the government with real repercussions if violated must be put in place. This will also instill a sense of austerity among the elected and appointed officers. Having to make do with less, just like so many Kenyans do, the practicality of this should be undisputable, given the problem of tenderpreneurship that Kenya faces. Solution two, make all political leadership a proper profession, proper profession before 2022. 
Now, I understand that this may not be possible for the presidential positions, but politics in Kenya must no longer be a game for just anyone to play. While it is every Kenyan's right to vie for political office, the threshold of suitability for candidates must be higher in order to measure equally to other professions. Consider any educated professional practitioner, like a doctor, a nurse, architect, banker, lawyer, or teacher. One must do an apprentice-based internship to master one's theory through practical application under residency or attachment, whether one's a doctor, a nurse, lawyer, teacher, architect, or a banker. Why is the same principle not applied to politics? Well, the next logical question that follows is, if applied, how can it be applied? Well, simply, and the answer is twofold. Through community service and a graduated political system as tenants for becoming a qualified candidate for political office. So in respect to community service, all political hopefuls should undertake a one to two year period of community service before seeking the lowest office within the graduated political system. Whether pursuing politics from high school, college, university, private sector, or as an individual of advanced years, all candidates must undertake an independently verifiable period of community service with the particular professions that have the greatest community impact, namely teaching, medical care, sanitation, and policing, all of which have been betrayed and embattled by successive governments and the public. They should also shadow artists and athletes who are mainly from the youth to see the challenges aspiring athletes and artists face and recognize that these professions are real careers and not just people at play. Within meeting this one to two year requirement, this will instill a newfound understanding, respect, and governmental recognition for all of these professions. Secondly, the political system must function on pillars of progression as a graduate system on the basis of tiers and performance, as all other professions do. So after completing the preliminary qualified community service internship, the tier system would then require one to be elected and perform at each level of office before seeking a second term or seeking a higher office. Tier one, the MCA. An MCA should have to fulfill 65% of their campaign manifesto to seek re-election. Tier two, MP. An MP should have to fulfill 70% of their campaign manifesto to seek re-election. Tier 3, Governor or Senator, where a Governor or Senator should have to fulfill 75 to 80 percent of their campaign manifesto to seek re-election. Tier 4, the highest level, President and Vice President, where President and Vice President must jointly have to fulfill 75 to 80 percent of their campaign manifesto to seek re-election. Now, well, I've talked about the different tiers. I haven't talked about the modalities of moving 
from tier 1 to tier 2 to tier 3 to the highest tier 4. So in respect to moving between tiers from MCA to MP to governor or senator or to president or vice president, all candidates should have to have had successfully completed two terms while meeting the deliverance thresholds of their manifestos. Now I talked of two solutions. Allow me to introduce a third. On the basis of more skin in the game, as aptly phrased by the BBI report, the graduated performance system should also extend to the salaries of appointed and elected officials to further enhance their skin in the game. Throughout the course of their terms of office on a periodic basis of payment, 30 to 35% of their salaries should be withheld as an extra incentive for achievement of performance in escrow, where the withheld amounts will then be released at the end of the term once the performance metrics of the office holder have been achieved, in the event that the performance metrics are not met, met then the said individual should forfeit the monetary withholdings, which should then be cycled back into the development of funds or the geographical locality within which that person held office. So, in summary, this is my viewpoint and the viewpoint of the Deep Well on the BBI report and the way forward for Kenya's political landscape. I hope to get a chance to read the B I hope you get a chance to read the BBI report and dig deep and dig well for the truth of BBI in your life. This has been the Deep Well. I'm Mutende Wrights. Until the next time.